October 15, 2016, in Oman, Unforgiveness. <laughs> All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to Sri Guru and Baranga. All glories to Sri Prabhupada. So these papers are mostly for your study after the class. We'll refer to just one or two things during the class. I have my own papers. When you see me looking at a paper, it's different than you do. So I'll look at a paper and everybody will start looking at but it's not there. So this is mostly for you to study at home, on your own, and to keep with you, although uh, there's at least one time when we'll refer to something on it during the class. So, the great emperor of the world, King Parikshit, was traveling, surprisingly, he must have been alone. We don't hear that he's with anybody on his horse, hunting out in the forest. And he didn't bring a canteen with him, I think. Or maybe it got empty. So he was very thirsty. Perhaps we've all been in a situation where we've been very thirsty. I, I remember um, one time being at, at Radicum, it was very hot. And this was before, they, before people sold bottles of water everywhere. So we, we had had two canteens. But the rickshawwala in Jagannath Puri had begged us for our American canteen. So we gave him one. So we only had one. So we had run out of water. And nobody was selling water in those days. So we were so thirsty. It was like end of April. And not only was Mars Cricket very thirsty, but he was also very tired. So as you know, when we are thirsty and tired, hungry, sick, uh, we usually become self-absorbed, isn't it? Right? Our, our own needs start to be more important than other people's needs. Of course, this is a surprising thing for Maharaj Pariksit because as, as a great devotee of the Lord, one would expect that his consciousness would not be affected by the state of his body. I mean, even Hiranyakashipu was a yogi uh, was able to maintain his life air in a body that had fallen apart. 
Ranti Dave was able to go a long time without eating and drinking. And we saw later, Mars Brickett was able to fast from food and water for seven days. Without difficulty, he said, I'm drinking the nectar of the Bhagavatam, so I'm not feeling or tall or asleep. So we wouldn't expect that Maharaj Pariket's consciousness would become affected. But somehow by the will of the Lord, for the Lord's Lila, it became affected. And again, when we, are, when we have some problem with our body like that, extreme pain or hunger or thirst or tiredness, we, we usually find it difficult to be kind to others. Isn't that a fact? We start wanting everyone to be kind to us and we don't think so much about being kind to others. Also, he was the emperor. But again, we wouldn't expect that Maharaj Brickett would have a Rajagun emperor mentality. But he sees that there's a little village of sages in the forest, and he thinks, well, these, these people must have water. So he goes in the door of one of the domiciles, uh, one of the dwelling places, and there is Shamakarishi, Meditate. So if one meditates properly, one enters into a, a state called samadhi. Uh, the state before samadhi is called prachadara. Prachadara is where the senses are withdrawn from their objects. We have a little experience of this every night in deep sleep. In deep sleep, we lose almost complete awareness of our surroundings. Yes, or we no longer feel or see. Even hearing, we can hear a little bit in deep sleep. We can be aroused by, by hearing a little bit. And so this is a state of samadhi, but of course in samadhi, the difference between samadhi and deep sleep is that in samadhi, the, uh, the soul, Krishna defines samadhi in the 11th canto, that in samadhi the soul is awake. The intelligence, the mind is quiet, and the soul is Of course, in bhakti, we have a little different kind of samadhi. As Srila Prabhupada explains in Bhagavad Gita, chapter 12, verse 2, where he says that when the devotee is cooking or the devotee goes to the market to purchase something, they're in samadhi. So if you were in a Shamakarishi kind of samadhi, it would be very difficult to go to the market and purchase something. You understand? How could you drive your car? It wouldn't be very effective. So what kind of samadhi is Srila Prabhupada speaking about there? Uh, this is a samadhi of love, which all of us experience in some form in our material dealings. Yes, so when a man and a woman are first in love, they are simply thinking of each other all the time. Correct? The person, they're, they're driving, they're at work, they're whatever, but they're simply thinking. Or when you have a baby... When the baby's first born, you're always thinking of that baby, isn't it? Right? Even you put the baby in one room and you go in another room and how's my baby? You're waking up at night, how's my baby? Sometimes this happens even when we get an object. You get a new phone or a new computer or a new car or something. And you're just absorbed in it. It also happens with us if we're in some kind of anxiety. We have something, some heavy anxiety in our life. It may put us into a state of samadhi where, we, you know, maybe some of you have something like this right now. So you may be sitting here, but you're not hearing anything that I say. 
because you're just worried about that email in your inbox from your boss or something like that. Oh no, you know, next week we have to move to Bulgaria. What will I do? So, and this may be absorbing your consciousness. So that's another kind of samadhi. It's a, thank you, it's a samadhi of attachment. So the samadhi that we're expected to do in Krishna consciousness is one of attachment. And fascinatingly enough, in that samadhi, you can also be very focused as to what you're doing in the world. Otherwise, why is Krishna telling Arjuna, Mam Anusram Yujicha? Right? First he says, Yam Yam Bhapisram Bhavam, Tvodajan Tekalevam, Whatever you're absorbed in determines your next life. Okay. So I will leave the world, I'll just go to Mayapur, and I'll just uh, sit down and chant Hare Krishna all the time. And then Krishna says, Mama Nusram Yujicha. Yuta. I mean, we are thinking what we are doing absorbs our attention, but not so much as fighting. Of course, maybe many of us have different kinds of fights, and Kali Yuga fighting is very common. But that kind of fighting, you know, with the bow and arrow and the weapons, it requires a lot of focus, isn't it? Yes, somebody's trying to kill you, and you're trying to kill them. Must be a lot of focus. And yet, Krishna wanted Arjuna to be in a bhakti samadhi while fighting. Of course, Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu sometimes would go into a kind of samadhi where he did stop his awareness of the world, where he did go into this kind of trance. When he came to see Jagannath for the first time, he entered into this kind of samadhi where people thought maybe he was dead. You understand? It was Sarvabhamabhattacharya with a little cotton. So in the general yogic samadhi, one is not aware of anything in the world. So Samakarishi was in this kind of samadhi. He was a mystic. Uh, but he's just sitting there, you know, like this. So Maharaj Prickett, he's the emperor, and he comes in. Please give me some water. I don't even know if he said please. No, he's the emperor. You understand? Water. No response. So because he was thirsty and because he was used to being obeyed, he felt disturbed. He felt disturbed. He felt frustrated. He felt frustrated because his thirst wasn't quenched. But what was really frustrating him? Who can say? His ego. That I'm not being what? I'm not being respected. That was an interpretation. Was Shamakarishi being disrespectful? Not at all. Not at all. Not even. You can give me both, that's all right. You have a choice. Thank you. But I don't think there's any bugs in here. Was Shamakarishi being disrespectful? Not even slightly. He wasn't aware that the emperor was there. So inside, the feeling that Marsh Brickett had was of annoyance, irritation. And frankly, when we, when we think we are not respected, we usually feel fear. Because we're afraid, if I'm not getting respected, I won't get what I need. And this was... Water, what do you need more than water? I mean, air. 
we were saying yesterday, the biggest needs are air and temperature. But water is a pretty high need. So one will become afraid. If I'm not getting respected, I, I won't get water. I'll die. And from this fear comes anger. Attachment, fear, and anger are very interrelated. So he became angry. He decided that his he decided that his interpretation of the event was the event. Let me say that again. He decided that his interpretation of the event was the event. Just like we have a map. Is a map the same as the place? No. So we all learn in our Hare Krishna movement that our senses are imperfect, we are subject to illusion, we make mistakes, we all learn this, but somehow we don't think that it applies to me on a daily basis. And we don't usually distinguish between what actually happened and my story about what happened. So what actually happened is Shamaka Rishi was in Samadhi and did not know the emperor was there. His story was, this Brahmana is disrespectful to you. And he started embellishing the story. All oh, these Brahmanas, you know, they think because there's higher than the Kshatriyas in the Varnashram system, that therefore they can be disrespectful to the emperor. You know, this is not the proper relationship between the Brahmanas and the Kshatriyas. He started making up a whole embellished story. And this is exactly what we do. Something happens, we have an interpretation about what happens, and then we build on it. And that becomes the truth for us. So because that became his truth, he felt justified in insulting the sage. The sage has insulted me because he thinks as a Brahmana he is better, therefore it is my duty as the emperor. He didn't think it is my false ego and I can act on my false ego. He thought it is my duty as the emperor that I have to teach this Brahmana how to behave. You understand? So he made a story about that also. He made a story about why he was behaving like that. And conveniently, by the will of providence, there was a dead snake, and he, with the end of his bow, he put the dead snake around the sage's neck. Of course, the sage didn't have any awareness of this because he's in Samadhi. So meanwhile, there's a 12-year-old boy, uh, but we can be even 22 or 32 or 42 or 52 and make this mistake. We shouldn't think... Only 12-year-olds make this mistake. So he saw what happened. He said he was playing a short distance away. And he also had an interpretation. What did he see? He sees the emperor puts a dead snake around his father's neck. That's what he saw. And so he decided, oh, this emperor has insulted my father because the emperor thinks that the Satriyas are higher than the Brahmanas. He said, yeah, he's only the watchdog. He said, the emperor is the watchdog. And now he's decided that he's the, actually the ruler. 
said to you, he rules only by the grace of the Brahmanas, but now he thinks. So he also had a whole story. And he was also filled with fear that if someone's respecting my father, and he didn't just say my father, the Brahmanas. You understand? This is, you see, wars start like this, right? They have disrespected all Indians, all Pakistanis, you know, and, and, and there's a war. So all the Kshatriyas have been offended. All the Brahmanas have been offended. And it is our duty as a Brahmana to rectify this. Otherwise, how are the Kshatriyas going to behave? So being 12 years old, uh, he had a, a very inappropriate response. So Maharaj Pirkit's response was inappropriate, but Srini's response was far more inappropriate. Because even if, even if his interpretation was correct, even if Maharaj Pirkit had acted improperly, uh, still that was not worth the death penalty. To give somebody the death penalty because they've insulted your family member is not an appropriate justice. So that was because he was a child. But even adults do this. We find, again, uh, most of the wars in the world come from this. And even sometimes a fight in a family. Sometimes in a family, there's brother or sister, brother and brother, parent and child. They haven't talked for 20 years. I'm sure you know of such situations. And when you go back to the original situation, you're like, they were late for your birthday party, so you haven't talked to them for 30 years, you know, it's like... Or your daughter married someone from a lower caste, so you've never seen your grandchildren. You're not going to go to your grandchild's wedding because you don't like your son-in-law. And so it becomes absurd. So he had, Shringi had an absurd reaction. And he cursed the, the emperor to die. Now, for both of them, after they reacted, their anger was dissipated. And when their anger was dissipated, they both considered, oh, maybe I did the wrong thing. And when Mars Brickett was on the way back, or maybe when he got back, all of a sudden he started thinking, maybe the sage was actually in Samadhi. Maybe, maybe my story was wrong. And then he said, oh, if I have the wrong story, now I'm in big trouble. Because now I've offended a Brahmana. Now I'm going to get a sinful reaction. So he said, if there's going to be a reaction, two things. Do you remember the two things he asked for? Anybody know? No? It should come to me and not to my family. It should come to me and not to my family. And it should come when? Immediately. Immediately. Because when you pay your karmic debts immediately, there's no interest. If you wait, then there's interest, compounded interest, compounded interest. So he said, let the reaction come to me immediately and let it come to me only. Let it not affect my family or anything. So he had some regret. And then Shrinky had some regret. He started to cry. And he was a child. So he started to cry. And his loud crying woke his father, eventually. Because even in Samadhi, a sound came, came eventually. And when the sage heard this, he was very sorry. And he was too embarrassed to go to Karikit directly. But he sent a message. He thought, I should warn the emperor. And so he sent a message, I'm very sorry that my son has done this. And he prayed to the Lord, please forgive my son. So 
this exchange between Pariket and Shringi, Prabhupada calls in the purport tit for tat. That's an uh, English expression, which means you hurt me, I hurt you, you hurt me, I hurt you. Just like in the Bible, in Leviticus, it says, if someone takes out your eye, you can take out their eye. So Gandhi quoted this, right? He said, an eye for an eye makes the whole world blind. So this is what we call tit for tat, that you do something to me, I do something to you. You, you hurt me, I hurt you. You hurt me, I hurt you. You hurt me, I hurt you. And Prabhupada uses the word in that purport, silly. That wasn't a word that Srila Prabhupada used a lot. But he said, this tit for tat is very silly. And this kind of, you've hurt me, I've hurt you, you hurt me, I hurt you, this can go on for lifetimes. Just like with Amba. You all know the story of Amba? How many of you know the story of Amba? I don't know if I have to tell the story. Okay, I'll tell just briefly. So there were three sisters who were having their swine to choose their husband. And uh, Bhishma had taken a vow not to marry. But I don't know why that Vichitavirya didn't go and choose his own bride. I don't know why. Somehow Bhishma decided he was going to get a bride for his uh, stepbrother, his half-brother. So he went to the swine bar, and instead of giving the girls a chance to choose Vichitavirya, he kidnapped all three girls. So perhaps that wasn't very nice. But anyway, that's what he did. And when he brought them all back, so two of the girls, they liked Vichitavirya. They were happy. They said, okay, we didn't get to choose, but he's a nice man. We'll, we'll, we'll have him. And Amba said, I already gave my heart to, to somebody else. And I, he was there at the swine bar, and I was going to garland him and marry him. And right before I was going to marry the man I love, you kidnapped him. And Bhishma said, okay, we'll send you to him. So she goes to him, to Shalva. And Shalva said, sorry, Bhishma's taken you. Now I'm not touching you. Which was all ego. It was completely ego, so then she was stuck. She, she came back. She says, I don't really like Richard Javiria, and Shalva won't marry me, and now I'm stuck. She said, okay, you're the cause of all this Bhishma for kidnapping me, so you have to marry me. So I don't think you'd want to marry somebody who was blaming you for all of their life trouble. I don't think it would be a very happy marriage. But in any case, Bhishma had taken a vow not to marry. So he said, yeah, I'm sorry, I can't do this. I've taken a vow not to marry. And she said, well... How is your vow more important than my happiness? And you created this situation. So she complained to his guru, Parasaram. And Bhishma had a fight with Par- Parasaram said, you marry this girl. Bhishma said, sorry, guru, I'm not doing that. Prabhupada said that's the only time you can disobey the guru. If he tells you to marry and you want to be a renunciate. And so Parasaram said, okay, I'll fight with you. They had a battle and basically Bhishma won. And Parasram said, okay, you do not have to marry this girl. So she's completely disturbed and angry. And she decides, I'm going to kill Bhishma. And it took her, what, like three lifetimes or something like that. She had to keep taking birth again and again. And finally she took birth as Shikandi and was indirectly the cause of Bhishma's death. What a waste of energy, huh? Imagine wasting three lives in anger trying to kill someone. All right, so what we've discussed so far, by the way, what time do we have to go to? This time, this interesting time on my watch. We are going to go to this time, folks, okay? So 
What I've just given you is examples of not forgiveness. Okay? Not forgiveness. Thank you. Those of you who were in my seminar yesterday afternoon. Who was in my seminar yesterday afternoon? Okay. So, did I use positive or negative? Only negative. And which one of the lists did I use? Which one of the things did I use? Stories. Very good. So these are examples. Sorry for the rest of you. I had to teach the teachers. So these are examples of what happens when we don't forgive. This is what not forgiveness looks like. And we may have something like this in our life. We may have somebody we have not forgiven or they have not forgiven us. And these things can go on for lifetimes. They can also go on for generations. There's a fight between your grandfather and his grandfather and the grandchildren, great-grandchildren, great-great-great-great-great-great, they're still fighting and they don't know why they're fighting. I mean, they may be fighting over a glass of water that was not given 500 years ago and they're killing each other. Yes? Is this correct? And nobody can sit down and talk peace. No, they're our enemies. Why? I don't know. <laughs> they just are. We hate them. For what? I don't know. And sometimes people from the outside, they look at these like they were the Tutsis and the Hutu, right, in Rwanda. And somebody who's not from Rwanda, you look at them and you're like, they look the same to me. And they were, they were killing each other. Really, I mean, terrible. We won't say publicly what they were doing, but it was, it was terrible. So that's what happens when we don't forgive. So the essence of not forgiving, the essence of not forgiving, is I want pain to come to those who gave me, or someone I loved, pain. And I want them to have pain in equal or greater measure. That is the essence of not forgiving. Somebody hurt me. Somebody was the cause of my pain, directly or indirectly. They hurt me or they hurt my mother or my child or my dog. They're directly or indirectly, that person caused my pain. And the way I'm going to respond is I want them to also be in pain equal or greater. Either I cause that pain or somebody else. I, you know, I'm, I'm maybe if the government puts them in jail, that's fine. All right. So I'd like to know why, what is motivating us to behave like this? Why do we want pain to come to those who give us pain? What do you think? Okay, definitely some pride. Can you explain to me why it's pride? You're right, but please explain the psychology. My ego got hurt and I underwent so many feelings. Okay, uh, yes, that's correct. My ego's hurt or my body's hurt or my finances are hurt or something. I want the same thing to go to them. But why is that pride? It is pride, but why? In what way is that pride? I want to change them. I want to change them. Okay, good. Very good. Why do I want to change them? For what purpose? So that they don't cause harm to others. Okay, so that they don't cause harm to others. Why else might I want to change them? Is there any process that 
this transformation which I have in my heart can be done joyfully. You know, you just jumped 10 minutes ahead of us. So you don't need to stay anymore. You could be my co-teacher. Okay. Why, why would I want them to change? I, I want them to change so they don't hurt others. Why else? Because I feel I'm right. Oh, very good. This is the pride. So the pride is I want to be right. I want my little story about what happened to have me as the victim and them as the bad guy. So if I'm suffering more than them, how could I be the victim and they be the bad guy? Because in our view of the world, bad guys have to suffer and good guys have to not suffer. At least if the good guys suffer, the bad guys have to suffer more. So if you are the bad guy and you're not suffering, and I am the good guy and I'm suffering, hmm, there's something wrong with this picture. So if my pride is that I am right, then you have to suffer more than I do. Excellent analysis. Thank you. That's a very difficult thing to understand. Excellent, excellent. And you were saying we want to change them so they won't hurt others. Why else might we want them to change? Yes? Uh, as you explained yesterday also, it is our uh, inner desire to enjoy. So I wanted my inner desire to be satisfied. And they're thwarting it, but why do I want them to be harmed? So I don't, I don't want them to do this again. Why? So they won't hurt others. Also, why us? Because I already underwent so many difficulties. So uh, really, I went through so many hard situations. So I don't want someone else to under. Okay. Well, that's I don't want them to hurt other people. What's another reason why I want them to learn a lesson? I don't want them to hurt me again. Self-protection. What might be another reason why I want them to learn a lesson? Oh yes, there is an element of envy. Envy means nobody should be as happy as me. You can have a very nice husband as long as he's not as nice as my husband. You can have a nice car as long as it's not as nice as my car. Envy is, you're welcome to have things, but they cannot be equal to mine or greater than mine. That is envy. So if my enemy is enjoying more than me, I don't like this. I don't want anyone to enjoy more than me, but especially not my enemy. So that is an envy. That especially people who hurt me, how dare they have more happiness than, than I have. Okay, I still want to know one more reason we would want someone to learn a lesson and not do this again. So, so they don't hurt others, so they don't hurt me, and why else? Yeah, they understand my greatness. Yes, that's also a kind of pride and envy. Anyone who hurts me is going to suffer. You know, if you hurt that person, you might not suffer. Okay, okay. That, that's not a very important person. You hurt that person. Okay. You hurt me? Oh, boy. So that's another kind of pride. Still looking for an answer to this one, though. Why do I want those who hurt me to get fixed? So they don't hurt others, so they don't hurt me, and... The next generation will not suffer what happened. Okay, that's also others. We go through the same uh, torments that I was faced. Who? The person who I want to get fixed with. Why do I want them to get fixed? 
so that my ego is satisfied. Okay, but what, what good reason might I want them to get fixed? So that karma is upheld. The law of karma is upheld. Very nice. So that there's justice. We all have an inside desire for balance and harmony. We don't like to see things out of balance. By the way, this is a little side note. That's one of the main reasons we take birth again and again. We're trying to put things in balance. We're trying, we want other people to pay their karmic debts to us, and we want to pay our karmic debts to them. Okay, so yes, that is one reason that I may want them to feel pain, is I feel, unless they feel an equal amount of pain, that there's an imbalance in the universe. Things are off balance. Why else? Yes? If you do not fix him, this repetition of who is good, who is bad, we don't know. Means the bad person, if we lift him, then the bad will happen. But if the person is, like if he is a thief, robber, if we encourage him, he will do more. Uh, I think what you're saying is for his sake. So he becomes a good person. Yes. Oh, very good. So we may want to fix those who hurt us because we care about them. It has nothing to do with whether they hurt me, whether they hurt somebody else. But we want them to, we want them to be a whole person. To give an example for a person's spiritual master to seek to get well, especially if the person who hurts you is your subordinate, then especially you want to help them. Is that what you're saying? If they're a yeah, disciple, I mean, uh, it's a derivative of uh, ignorance uh, that uh, you take law in your hand because our uh, spiritual intelligence is missing, and there is, uh, of course, as you said in your class, that. Uh, the mind is like a mirror of the heart and uh, so we take those decisions because we are not spiritually, we are not spiritualized. Yes, exactly. We're seeing things on a material level. Alright, so all these things that we want by hurting our enemy, except for the envy and pride part, they're all good things. We want to restore balance. We want other people not to be hurt. We want to protect ourselves from getting hurt again. Right? We also want the person to be fixed for themselves. I can think of one more very good thing. If the person who hurts you is somebody with whom you want to continue to have a relationship, sometimes the people who hurt us, we don't care if we never see them again for the rest of eternity. But sometimes the people who hurt us we, we want a continued relationship with them. And then sometimes we're feeling with those people, we want them to hurt also why? If they feel the same pain that they gave to me, what are we hoping that will do? Well, that we've already mentioned. They will not repeat it. They will reform themselves. But what else are we looking for? They'll feel sorry and we'll have a sense of what with them? No, our relationship can come back. No. Our relationship can come back. We're, we're looking for a sense of, we're trying to restore the connection. And you see this a lot in a family. You know, if, the, if one spouse says something hurtful to the other, the other says something hurtful back, because they're thinking, if you knew how much you hurt me, 
you would you would stop and restore the connection. You understand? Do you understand? So the wife says, "Why are you coming home late without calling? The dinner's getting cold. Don't you care about me?" So that's are hurtful things. But she's thinking, if I say something hurtful to my husband, then he will feel how much he is hurting me, and then he will stop and think, "Oh, I don't want to hurt my wife like that." And then there'll be empathy and connection. Does that usually work? No. no. But that the motive is there. So it's a motive for balance and harmony and justice. It's a motive for my personal protection. It's a motive for the protection of others. There's a motive for compassion on the person, and there's a motive for empathy. Those are all good motives. And then the bad motives are: I'm trying to prove that I'm right, and I am trying to prove that I'm better. So let's put aside the I'm trying to prove that I'm right and I'm trying to prove that I'm better. And let's look at the good motives. And we want to see, is there a way to get those good motives met? Because they are good. They're actually spiritual motives. To want balance and harmony, that is a spiritual thing, correct? To want to feel safe, that is a spiritual thing. The soul is always safe. To want a connection and empathy, again, that is a spiritual thing. To care about the person, that is compassion, that is a spiritual thing. So these are spiritual things that are being expressed through the modes of passion and ignorance, so they're coming out in a wrong way. It's like if you have a white light and you have some, you know, dirty window. You understand? You're seeing a, a light but through a dirty window. So I'd like to go over four steps, and I have them listed at the top of your paper here. Four steps to forgiveness. Now, there may be other ways of explaining forgiveness and other ways of teaching forgiveness. I'm not saying this is the only way, but I hope that you will find this helpful. Um, I'd like to just say very, very, very briefly, the way that I got involved in this, I don't have time to go into it in depth, the way I got involved in this, I used to run a gurkula. And we had a library. We had about 4,000 books. And uh, some of the books were from other religious traditions and wasn't only Gaudiya Vaishnava books. So one of the parents uh, lent me a book about religious persecution under the Soviet Union. And there I read about how these hired persons by the government would be beating anybody who had a gathering in their house for prayer. So if you had like three people in your house come together and praying, doesn't matter what religion, they would come and beat everybody. They would beat them, they would try to break all the bones in their face, but not kill them. They were not supposed to kill them. And then they would put them in jail without medical care. And it was a story of one man who was recruited by the government to be beating what he called the believers, to be beating religious people and how he himself became a religious person and reformed. It was, it was a, a, a very, a true story written by this person and, and very moving story. But what particularly moved me was one time when he, the, he went to beat this woman, some woman like 40, 50 years old, and as he was about to hit her, she looked at him and said, I forgive you. And that made him very angry. He thought, who are you to forgive me? And so, even though he was not supposed to kill anybody, that was his instructions. He never, 
it happened maybe once or twice by accident. But he got so angry he decided he was going to kill her. And so he picked up, they had a big metal rod covered with rubber. And he, so he picked it further and he thought, I'll kill her. And as he picked it further, somebody grabbed his hand and he couldn't move his hand. He was a very strong person. And he thought, oh, one of the other believers must have grabbed me. Let me, I'll get them first. And he turned around and, what do you think? There was nobody there. So he dropped his rod and he, he ran away. Then he there was his own story after that. But I thought about this woman. I thought if somebody was going to beat me and break all the bones in my face and leave me without medical care, would I be able to say, I forgive you? And I thought, probably not. Uh, the woman in the story was a Christian woman. And I thought, so here I am. You know, I'm, I'm a Hare Krishna, I'm a Gaudiya Vaishnava, and I'm supposed to have a better philosophy than the Christians. And here, this woman way outdid me in forgiveness. And it was, it was a change for me. And I thought, maybe this forgiveness is not only for Hari Das Thakur and Prahlad Maharaj. Because up to that point, I thought, yes, yes, after I become like Hari Das Thakur, then I will be forgiven. Right now, I can just be a mean, nasty demon. It's okay, because I'm so fallen. So it's, it's all right. And you understand? Right now, I can, act, I can be just cruel and mean and vengeful. And, because after all, I'm not a pure devotee. So it's okay. And, and someday, I'll become like Prahlad Maharaj, and then I'll be forgiven. So I read this story, and I said, Whoa, maybe I can be forgiving now. It was quite a revolution, a revolutionary idea. And then I thought, what does it mean to be forgiven? What does it mean? Because usually we think forgiving means, oh, it's okay. You can kick me and spit on me and take all my money and kidnap my kid and it's okay. And I thought, it couldn't mean that. I thought, I've discovered that one of the difficulties we have with following Vaishnava principles is that Maya convinces us that the Vaishnava principle is something ridiculous and impractical. Maya convinces us is humility means, you know, you have a million riyals in the bank and you say, oh, I'm a very poor man. Now, many times devotees think humility is like this. They go around, oh, Prabhuji, I have no qualification. You have no qualification, you have 30 years experience, postdoc research, what's this? No, no, I don't know. So we think humility is lying, you understand? Uh, so we also think forgiveness is, is idiocy. That's like Prabhupada said that Gandhi had claimed that if his daughter was violated in his presence, he would be nonviolent. Prabhupada says this is absurd. You don't stand there while your daughter is being violated. Oh, I am nonviolent and I forgive you. <laughs> so I thought it can't mean that. that that's not, Krishna is not asking us to do something like that. So I started thinking, well, what does it mean to be forgiven? What does it mean? And my basic conclusion is that forgiveness gives us balance and harmony. It gives us connection. It gives us compassion. Only because these way of hurting people, do they really bring balance? No, it aggravates. You hurt them, they want to hurt you. It never becomes balance. Does it really bring empathy? No. 
And of course, what to speak of pride and envy. Does it really bring compassion? Am I compassionately hurting somebody? No. So how to do these things practically? So I've come up again with these, with these four steps. I personally found it very helpful. And I will tell you that even if you do these mechanically, my experience is that even if you do these mechanically, it's, it's magical. So now when I was first studying this, the first time I applied it, I applied it completely mechanically. So I said I was running a group, so some parent was angry at me about something. I don't remember what anymore. But anyway, they were very angry with me, and they were yelling at me. And I just went through these steps in my mind. And immediately I was peaceful and happy. But I went through them mechanically, like I had a little cheek. There was no feeling. But I think Krishna was so happy that, oh, you're even trying. Like the baby stands up for two seconds when they're learning how to walk, you know, and the parents get all excited. So Krishna got all excited. So even if you apply this mechanically, even if you don't feel it, by doing it mechanically, Krishna will help you and you will feel it. And I, I like teaching this because this is one of those things where it's this much effort and this much gain. I never like the things that are this much effort and this much gain, you know? Sometimes we think if it's a big problem, it requires a big solution. That's not always true. Even if it's a big problem, it can be a little solution. Okay, so first step. Am I right? Am I right? Am I really the victim? This requires my mind humility. My senses are imperfect. I make mistakes. I can be illusioned. Do we make a mistake at least once a day? Yes, I'm not the only one who has this problem, correct? How many times have we been in situations where we were sure we were right and we were wrong? At one time I was talking to my youngest son. We were having kind of a, not quite an argument, but a discussion. And then he said, Mata, are you sure you're right? I said, I am sure I'm right. And then there was a pause and he said, 100% sure? He's a very smart boy. So I got a little scared and I said, well, maybe not. I thought maybe he knows something I don't know. <laughs> I mean, so many times we think, there, there's a, a study I read about innocent people who are put in jail and a fourth of the people who are later found innocent are put in jail by eyewitness testimony. There was one case in America, in New Jersey, this is, I mean, it's not funny for the ladies, it's funny for us telling the story. There were four women in jail for the same crime. And the only thing they had in common, they were all short and fat. And none of them were the criminal. So the first thing is, am I right? Am I right? I don't know if I have time. Do we have to vacate the hall exactly 10.30? Okay. So can I tell you another story? Yes. Stories are good, but they take, may, may take a little longer. So when I was uh, running the Gurukula, so we had a family from Brazil. And the, you know, sometimes immigration policies are very strange. So the parents and three of the children were in America, but two of the children, the two older children, were stuck in Brazil. So the children who had been born in America were in America, but the children who had been born in Brazil, they weren't allowed. 
So finally, the family smuggled the children, actually smuggled the children into America through the Canadian border. Probably couldn't do that today. But you didn't need, you used to not need passports at the Canadian border. So they smuggled the children into, the, into America, and they had been in America maybe two weeks. So their English was very limited. These two older boys, very limited English. And their mother had been a cook for the Gurukul for a long time. She cooked the lunch. So one day, right before lunch, I got a very disturbing phone call from someone. And I said to the other teacher, I, I'm kind of upset right now, and I don't think I could eat. I said, I'm too upset. I, I can't eat anything. I said, look, you save a plate for me, and I'm going to go to the temple shop and get something, and please, you take care of the children. So the next day, this family's children did not come to the school. And when I called them to ask, they wouldn't answer the phone. And I asked people, why have they taken their children out of the school? And they would say, I don't know. Or I think you insulted their mother. I couldn't understand. And for two months, two months, if I'd ask anybody, they'd say, I don't know. I heard you insulted their mother. Couldn't understand. The family would not talk to me. So after two months, the GBC came to visit, and I said to him, Prabhu, it's a big problem in the community. You know, we're seeing this family every day at the program, and nobody will talk to me. And I said, what happened? And he said, oh, I heard that you insulted the mother's cooking in front of the children. I still couldn't understand. That night when I went to bed, I woke up at 2 in the morning, completely awake. And I remembered the whole day. I remembered exactly what happened that day. And I thought, it must have been something that I didn't eat for lunch. So the next day, at, after greeting the deities in Guru Puja, I actually blocked the temple room door. And I said to the father, in front of the deities, you're going to tell me what happened. I said, I'm not going to let you out of the temple room until you tell me what happened. You must talk to me in front of the deities. So he went in front of Radha Kunjabi Hari, and he said, you know, that day it was time to eat and my wife had cooked and you said, this food makes me sick. I'd rather eat something from a shop. <laughs> so for two months they were sure they were right. So we settled it and we became friends. It was all, okay. They put their kids back in the school and the ending is very happy. But for two months, they were convinced I had said this. For two months. So many times we are convinced I am right. But you know, we may not be right. There was one time I was so convinced somebody had offended me and it turned out I had offended them. So the first step is what we call due process. Due process is where somebody has the legal right to have witnesses against them, to state their own point of view. You understand? This is on your paper, at the top of your paper. First step is due process. That I should assume, I should assume, I have imperfect senses, I have the propensity to cheat, I make mistakes, I can be illusioned, Maybe, 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 maybe I am not 100% right and the other person 100% wrong. Maybe. Maybe there's another story here. Or another true story is a gentleman who went to a restaurant and the waitress 
messed up his order and spilled the liquid on him and was just making a mess. He was so angry, he thought, I will not give any tip. You know, in America, they leave a tip. That I will not give any tip. And he was about to leave the restaurant in an angry mood, and he overheard two other waitresses talking about his waitress, saying, I don't know how she's managing with her five children since her husband died a week ago. So do we really know the whole story? Do we know what happened with the other person? What's the other person's intentions? Due process. Now, if it's a very serious matter, then the due process has to be done by the proper authorities, like you said, to take justice into our own hands. So this is also a kind of pride that we think we're going to be Yamaraj. So due process. Give the other person... Give the other person the same chance as you would want someone to give you. If someone's angry with you without cause, you want the chance to explain yourself, correct? Yes? So you give the other person the chance. And this requires a little humility. I'm not God. I make mistakes. Maybe we're both 50% wrong. Sometimes you find you are 0% right. (laughs) I have been in situations I thought I was 100% right, I was 0%. So first is due process, and if necessary, going to the law. So at this point, with step one, we're going to look just briefly. It's a little side area, but everybody asks this question, so I want to get to it now. Is does forgiveness mean there's no justice? Does forgiveness mean that anyone who does something wrong doesn't have to suffer any consequence? The answer is no. Krishna also wants justice in the world. But justice, you know what would be really nice, kids? Hey, kids, if you want to walk around, can you walk around the back and set it behind me? Okay, because you're all so much prettier than I am that when you're walking here, everybody just wants to look at you. So if you want to go around, just go, go around all the way in the back, okay? Can you do that? They probably won't, but anyway, at least I tried. (laughs) So, if it's a serious case, then you give it to the proper authorities. This again requires humility. You know, I don't have to solve everything myself. It can go to the parents, or it can go to the temple president, or to the GBC, or it can go to the police, or it can go to a mediator. Now, those people, why do we have a separate person to decide if a perpetrator is harmed or not. Because their ego isn't involved. This problem with pride and envy, which can be part of the reason I want to hurt those who hurt me, should be absent in the judge and the lawyer because they're not personally involved here. So if it's a serious matter, if it's actually a serious matter, it should go to the proper impartial authorities who are supposed to represent God in this world. The the king, the president, the judge, the police officer, they're supposed to represent God. So I want you to look at the bottom of the first page in regard to the concept of forgiveness in terms of legality. The concept of forgiveness in terms of legality is whether or not a criminal or wrongdoer gets any kind of punishment from the government. This is a different kind of forgiveness than what we're generally talking about. So let's look here. This is in the Mahabharata, Vanaparva, 
It says page 13, but that's obviously in a particular book. Prahlad Maharaj explains forgiveness. One day, Bali approached Prahlad and asked, which is actually meritorious, forgiveness or the use of strength? Prahlad, neither forgiveness nor the use of prowess is meritorious in all situations. If one were to always forgive, then his servants, dependents, enemies, and even strangers would disrespect him. When one always forgives, then mean-minded servants gradually steal away all of his wealth and fail to respond to his commands. On the other hand, one who simply punishes and never forgives soon finds himself to be bereft of all friends. Indeed, everyone comes to hate such an unforgiving person, and when there is the slightest opportunity, they do something to harm him. Therefore, the conclusion is that prowess and forgiveness should be exhibited at the proper times. My dear Bali, the following person should be forgiven. One who has done nice service in the past, even if guilty of a grave fault. One who offends simply due to ignorance or folly. One who is a first-time offender. One who has committed some wrong against his will. And in addition, other offenders may sometimes be forgiven just to create a good public image. The following person should not be forgiven. One who is knowingly offended and yet claims to be innocent, even if his offense is slight, and a second offender, no matter how small the crime. So this particular discussion is in the context of legality. It's also in the context of, say, parents dealing with children, employers dealing with employees. It's dealing with the situation where the offense is not to you, and you are the designated impartial person who has to deal with a subordinate for their good and the good of society. So the meaning of forgiveness then is whether or not the person, technically speaking, gets a punishment. Is that clear to everybody? This kind of forgiveness and punishment is not to be meted out by the offended party. It is meted out by a neutral party who's actually an authority after due process. So if it's a serious case, you want to have due process done by the proper impartial authority. If it's a minor case, you and the other person should work out due process. If it's something in the middle, maybe you go to mediation. Does this make sense to everybody? Yes. I mean, I've also been trained in mediation. And uh, there was one interesting case that I mediated where a temple had made a written contract with a grahasta couple. And then they had amended the contract verbally many, many times over a period of several years. The temple was now claiming that this grahasta couple had violated the contract. The grahasta couple was claiming that the temple violated the contract. And we were not able to find a contract with which both parties agreed even existed because the written contract had been verbally amended. So as a mediator, I threw out the written contract, and we just looked at it from a financial point of view, and we were able to come up with a spreadsheet that showed what the temple had given and what the couple had given and so forth, and we were able to work out an agreement between the parties. But that's not a pure legal, you know, we're not going to a court or things like that. So there's basically these, these three levels. You give the other person due process yourself, you know, not probably when you're steaming with hurt and pain. Breathe. Go chant for a while. Prabhupada says, if your mind is disturbed, 
It's like muddy water, and you sit and chant, so the mud settles. By the way, that's a very common analogy in all the meditation traditions of the world. So you sit and chant for a while, and you, you settle your mind. Not when you're like, you know, you breathe, and not when you're all like this. And then you try to have due process with the person. What's your side of the story? And actually listen. And if it's too serious for that, you involve a mediator. If it's too serious for that, you go to the proper authorities. So first step is due process. And this should always, always, always be done first. Always. Many times nowadays we get offended by electronic communication. And I'm sure many of you know why. In our communication, what percentage of communication is just the words? Anybody know? About 7%. And what percentage is our tone of voice? About 23%. And 70 is our body language. Right? So if I say, sure, um, yeah, I'd love to spend more time with you. I'm having such a great time. Or think of all the ways we can say no. Right? No. 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 And the meaning is completely different. So what happens when we read an electronic communication? Do you know what happens? Something really interesting happens. Our mind invents the tone of voice and the body language. When you're on the phone, your mind invents the body language. When you're reading it, your mind invents the tone of voice and the body language. And then guess what our lovely, dear friend of the mind does? It assumes that our invention is the reality. We're really good at this. We're really good at assuming our interpretation of reality is reality. And I don't know why people who chant Hare Krishna and know we have four defects do this. I just can't understand it. We know we have four defects. We've been chanting Hare Krishna for 10, 20 years. And we still think whatever my mind tells me is true is true. Very interesting. So especially in electronic communication, you know, you're inventing. All of us, we're inventing the body language, the tone of voice. And then we're responding to that. And the other person is completely bewildered. What? <laughs> so, due process. Due process. Due process. Due process. A huge majority of our pain and insult and agony and relationship problems could be solved if we just did due process. Okay. Let's say we've done due process and we are really the victim, which is a minority of the cases. So we've done due process and, and we really are the victim. The other person was wrong. Maybe not 100%, but maybe 80, 90%, and, and we're really suffering. Okay, next step. Connect with Krishna. Connect with Krishna. We want balance, we want connection, we want compassion, we want safety. Where are we going to find that? Where are we going to find that? Krishna. We're not going to find that in another human being. I don't care how nicely they treat us. Even if another human being treated us perfectly, which is not going to happen, we're still not going to get balance, harmony, connection, right? safety, empathy, perfectly. Does that make sense to everybody? 
It's not going to happen. I give the example all the time. You know, you have a little device. It has a little battery. But it can't power the room. So another jiva is like a little phone with a little battery. But we're looking for the powerhouse. And Krishna has unlimited to give. Om Purnam Madha Purnam Idam Purnam Purnam Idachate Purnasya Purnam Adaya Purnam Eva Prasishate. If you take infinity from infinity, you get infinity. We can get our needs met infinitely. Infinitely. I do not need you or you or you or you or you or you or all of you to meet my needs. We talked about this in Manashiksha with Dharma, not Dharma, not Dharma. Be Krishna's agent. Try to please Krishna. Get your needs met from Krishna. If that's all you get from today's class, that is a life changer. When we get all of our needs met from Krishna, something interesting transpires. We realize that nobody can hurt me. Interesting. I'm always safe. I'm always safe. I'm always in balance. I'm always connected. I'm always filled with compassion and recipient of compassion. I don't need to adjust something between me and another jiva to achieve what I already have. If you're Bill Gates, you don't need to make a business deal with me. You understand? Bill Gates doesn't need a business deal with me. He doesn't need my, you know, five dollars. You understand? But if, if somebody once calculated that to Bill Gates, forty-five thousand dollars lying on the ground is not worth picking up. It's not worth the time to bend over and pick up. So if you have, of course, Bill Gates doesn't have unlimited. But if you have unlimited, and Krishna says this in the Bhagavad Gita in the third chapter. He said, when you're connected with the Supreme, you have nothing to achieve by doing your actions. You have no results to achieve. Why? Because you already have everything. Nor do you have any reason not to do it, because you have no aversion. Nor do you have any need to depend on any other living being. Yes? One doesn't need respect and consideration and this and that from another jiva if one already has it from Krishna. If you're friends with the king, what do you care if some laborer disrespects you? What does it matter? You understand? Yes? So connect with Krishna. And this may mean you sit down and you chant, may mean you sit down and you read the Bhagavatam, whatever is your way of connecting with Krishna. One thing I found particularly helpful if I have emotions just going is to give those emotions to Krishna. If I'm very angry, then I say, Krishna, I wish I was this angry at Kaliya. I wish I was this angry at Kamsa. If I'm very sad, and I think, Krishna, I, I wish I was this sad that you've gone to Mathura. <coughs> you understand? If I'm very scared, and I say, Krishna, I wish I was this scared when you were swallowed by Bakasura. And I relate to Krishna. And I have found that to be an instant switch. It's like a light switch. If I have these emotions and I just say, I wish, 
Just like the ghost mommies have this prayer. You write the Nami Thakini, you have child, you tell your time, and I'm going to take that by my name, I'm coming Just like a young boy and a young girl are attracted, let me have this kind of spontaneous attraction for you. But it's like that with all of our emotions and all of our desires. I wish I was this greedy for devotional service. I wish I was this lazy for sense gratification. You understand? So that's another way to connect with Krishna. And it's, it's, it's easy and it's instant. It, it changes your mood just instantly. Connect with Krishna. Connect with Krishna. Take the time to connect. Don't just react. You follow? We are not machines. We do not have to just react. It's not necessary. We can reflect. There's a space between stimulus and response. There's choice. If there were no choice, there'd be no meaning to karma. There's choice. Find that space. By the way, if you chant good japa, that space will be more visible to you. One of the effects of good japa, good gayatri, is that you become aware that there's a space between stimulus and response. And somebody offending you or insulting you, that you have a space to reflect. And you have a space to say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, what was on that list again? Where did I put that paper from there? Oh yeah, okay, okay. Do process, yeah, yeah, okay. Connect with Krishna. And you have the space to do that. Okay? Connect with Krishna. I don't need to protect myself. Krishna is protecting me. Mari Krishna Rake K, Rake Krishna Mari K. We've all seen this. Yes? Have we had someone who tried to hurt us and they just couldn't do it? Everybody's had this experience? Yes? And other people are your friend and they don't even want to hurt you when they hurt you? Have we had this experience also? Mare Krishna Rake K, Rake Krishna If Krishna doesn't allow somebody to harm me, no matter how clever they are, how powerful they are, they won't harm me. And if I'm going to feel some harm, even nobody intends to harm me, I will feel. Connect with Krishna. Okay. Next thing. Third step. Now, I, I, by the way, you must do the second step or you can't do the third step. The third step will not work if you haven't done the second step. Why? Because if you're not getting your needs met, you can't be charitable to anybody else. Unless you're, you know, you can't. You just can't. Even someone like Ranti Dave, who was charitable to others without eating himself, but he was spiritually satisfied. Do you understand? He didn't need food to be satisfied. He didn't care if he lived or died. Somebody, anybody, do many money. He didn't care. When I used to be in charge of the Janmastani servant for many years, I told all of the servers, first you have to make yourself a plate. I found especially the preparations that were in smaller quantity. If the servers didn't make themselves a plate, they would be very miserly with those preparations. <laughs> so, that was my requirement. First you make a plate, put it aside, and then you can serve. And I was, I was just listening to Prabhupada saying this yesterday, that the devotee is detached because they're full. They're not detached because they're hard-hearted. They're detached because they're full. If I already have safety, compassion, connection, balance with Krishna, then I don't need to get it from my enemy. And only then can I treat my enemy the way I would like to be treated. Okay, so the third one is what you said before. 
you should have been my assistant here. <laughs> May you learn through joy. May you learn through joy. Now, when you become practiced at this art, you can go right to that part, but you have to connect with Krishna first. So you can become practiced so you can do this connection with Krishna in a moment. And you can even do this before you do due process just to kind of settle your mind. May you learn through joy. So how many of you, how many of us here, have learned a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful lesson, but in some difficult or uncomfortable way? How many of us here have learned a wonderful lesson in some joyful, ecstatic, happy way? And some of you have never learned anything in your whole life. (laughs) Okay. So if you could choose... (laughs) If you could choose whether you want to learn through suffering or through joy, what would you choose? Joy. Joy. I actually had two people tell me that they would prefer to learn through suffering, and I said, okay, you know. I'm not going to interfere with your life. So, we would prefer to learn through joy. But even Kunti Devi wasn't exactly like that. Because Kunti was saying, let the calamities come again and again because then you visit us. If Krishna visited me every time I had a calamity, I would also want the calamity. (laughs) If every time there was a problem, hi. And when everything was, went well, Krishna wasn't there, I would definitely be praying for She wasn't praying for calamities to pray for calamities. And she wasn't praying for calamities to learn some karmic lesson. She wasn't, she wasn't a masochist. She was saying, Krishna, when everything's nice, you don't come. And when we're in danger, you come. So if danger is required for you to come, let the dangers come again and again and again. I want to see you, and I want to see you so much, that if it requires danger, then let the danger. She wasn't begging for suffering. Not like these guys who, what are those guys who are doing in, in Bahrain? They're hitting themselves with the, not like that, no. No, 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 not like that. Not like So have you ever wondered why we don't learn more through joy? Have you ever asked this question? I have asked this question. Why, Krishna, do you teach me through suffering? Why not only through joy? So this is half the reason. The other half is whether we will listen when he's joyful. Yeah, yeah. Like I, I tell people, so Krishna has different ways of calling. This is a side topic. Krishna has different ways of calling his cows, getting his cows to move from one place to another. How does he do it? How does Krishna get his, he has his flute? Yes. He also calls their name. You know he has chapa beads. Everybody knows Krishna has chapa beads. It's in Krishna book. What are they made out of? What are Krishna's japa beads made of? Jewels. No, not those. Jewels. And all different colored jewels. And on each bead, he calls the name of the leader of a group of cows. So he chants, that's Krishna's japa time. He chants cow names. We chant Krishna's names, he chants cow names. So he calls his cows by name, he calls them with his food. How else does he get the cows to move from one place to another? What else does he have with him? A stick. A stick. He has a buffalo horn. So he calls their ja- he has their japa his japa beads for their names, his flute, his horn. He has a stick. He has a rope also. So I say to people, if you don't like the rope and the stick, then here are the food. 
So that is one way to learn through joy. Pay attention when Krishna gets his food. Don't wait for him to get up his stick. But the other way is what you wish for others. So again, if you look at your first paper, right above what we read last time, just right above, it's just two lines. This is from the Bhagavatam 4.8.17. This is Suniti speaking to Dhruva. He says, don't wish for anything inauspicious for others. Anyone who inflicts pain upon others suffers himself from that pain. My dear friends, other than our complete foolishness that we need a stick rather than a flute, the other reason that we learn through suffering is that we want other people to learn through suffering. Every time I want someone else to learn through suffering, I am creating an effect where I am going to learn through suffering. Not very smart. If you want your enemies to learn through joy, then you will also learn through joy. So even if you're completely, totally, 100% selfish, wish your enemies to learn through joy. It's not a hard thing to say, even if you don't feel it immediately. Just say it anyway. May you learn through joy. May you learn through joy. <laughs> and that's really kind of how I said it the first time I tried this. And Krishna flooded me with peace. And I thought, well, that's really interesting. He was so happy again, like the little baby who stands up for one second. Krishna kind of said, oh, you stood up for one second. <laughs> so even if it's mechanical, even if you don't mean it, practice it. And after a while, you'll find you do mean it because it is so blissful. It's so blissful. There, there's one Buddhist, very famous Buddhist, who teaches meditation techniques. And he tells everybody, at least twice in every hour, find somebody around you and think, may you be happy. And the people who do this, they find their whole life becomes happy. Such a simple thing. And I thought, when I heard that, I thought, that's right out of the Bhagavad sixth chapter. See others' happiness like your own. Just random people. You can try it sometime, you know, just you're out and about and see somebody. Maybe you can have, you know, say it, but just... the hardest person to do this for is someone who's hurt you. Just practice. May you be happy. May you learn through joy. We want them to learn. We don't want them to go on hurting people. But we want them to learn in a joyful way. Will they? I don't know. That's not our problem. How they will learn is not, not our business, as we say in the West. Not my monkeys, not my circus. So, whether the person learns through joy or not, that's not my monkeys or my circus. That's Krishna's deal with them. But I want them to learn through joy. You understand? I want them to learn through joy. And if they never suffer for hurting me, and they only learn through joy, then I will be very happy. What? Because I got all my needs met, remember? From Krishna. I didn't need to get my needs met. All right. The last one. If somebody has hurt me, Krishna had to allow it. We don't like this one. If somebody hurt me, Krishna had to allow it. Krishna is my friend. Suridam Sarvabhutanam. He's my best, best, bestest friend. What do, what do we have? The BFF, best friends forever? Like the teenagers? They are, is she my BFF? Krishna is our best friend forever. He's really our best friend, unconditionally. 
Krishna even likes the poisonous spiders and the, you know, malaria-carrying mosquitoes. And Krishna loves everyone unlimitedly, unconditionally. So if Krishna has allowed somebody to hurt me, there must be something good behind it for me. Right? There's only a few choices for the universe. There's no God at all, and everything is just random. If that's what we think, I don't see that there's any reasonable option other than suicide. If the universe is just completely random, and there's no purpose, and there's nobody in control, why are we living? We're just a series of random mistakes over billions of years from an electrical storm in a primordial soup. Why do anything? Another choice. There is a ruler, but he's evil. There's an evil God. There's a lot of fictional movies and books about this. You know, there's an evil force controlling the universe. Now, if that's true, there's no option at all. Then we're just, we're just finished. There's nothing you can do whatsoever. It's just suffering from beginning to end. Now, that doesn't tally with the fact that we all want to be happy. All right, another option. There's a controller who's neutral. Another option, there's a controller who's benevolent. So if there's a controller who's neutral or a controller who's benevolent, then there's no harm that's going to come to us without some good reason. Does this make logical sense to everybody? If there's an evil controller, we're just finished. Might as well, I don't know what you're going to do then. And if there's no controller, we're finished. There's no use in anything. If there's a malevolent controller, then you can't even get out of it. So if there's a controller who's neutral or, or loving, everything that happens to us must be loving. Must have a purpose. So the fourth thing is you ask, what is the purpose? Now when you ask, what is the purpose, the person you have to ask is Krishna. Not the person who hurt you, because why they hurt you may have absolutely nothing to do with the purpose. You understand? They may have hurt you because they have indigestion. You understand? Or they got in a fight with their wife that morning, or it may have nothing to do with your lesson. Or they maybe didn't even know that they hurt you. So you have to ask Krishna, and you have to ask Krishna as if you want to know the answer. which we usually don't. Wanting to know the answer, we talked about this with the four steps of bathing in the ocean of love. You ask Krishna and say, please tell me the truth. What is it I'm supposed to learn here? Now, in my own experience, a large percentage of the time when somebody hurts us, what we're supposed to learn is what I would call the mirror. And this is very hard for people to accept. So you're welcome to just forget that I said this. But I found it to be true. That the vast majority of the time when someone hurts me, I have done a similar kind of harm to somebody. It may have been a different somebody. And it may have been under different circumstances. So is it all right if I tell you my story about that? Yes. Okay. So this is when I was first discovering all this. And I thought, 
you know, this law of karma, maybe it applies to me. Possible. I mean, usually I think the law of karma applies to everybody else, and not me, because karma I near to have to came to Chabakti Bajam. I'm a virgin, so I can't have karma. But just on the off chance that the law of karma might apply to me, and that it might apply to me right now, that perhaps what I'm getting back is what I'm giving out. Usually we think of it, what I give out, I get back. But why don't we think about what I'm getting back, maybe I'm giving out. So I was in a, a place, as I said, I was running a school, and sometimes the temple board would meet without me, and they might make a decision that affected my school. And then they would usually tell me after the meeting, oh, by the way, Arima, we made this decision that affects your school. And I would say, please, dear board members, when you do that, can you call me first? Invite me to the meeting, or table it, and invite me to the next meeting. Somehow include me in decisions about me. Oh, yes, 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 we will do that. We are so sorry. Next time we will do it. And guess what would happen next time? It would happen again. And this was happening repeatedly over years. So then I said, you know, if this is happening repeatedly over years, maybe I'm doing this to someone. And I couldn't imagine that I was doing this to someone. I couldn't imagine that I would make decisions that affect somebody without consulting with them. In my view of reality, I never did that. I always consulted with people about decisions that affected them. That was my view of myself. So when I asked Krishna this, it was with some incredulity. I said, Krishna, I don't think I do this to anybody ever. But because it keeps happening to me, I'm going to say, perhaps I do. I'm going to be open to considering it. So if I ever make decisions about somebody without consulting with them, please show me. So that was in the evening I prayed like that. And then as we often do with these kind of prayers, I forgot that I prayed like that. <laughs> so the next morning when I got up, somehow I was feeling inspired by that verse in the Bhagavatam that says if you're chanting but your heart doesn't melt, you must be committing offenses. So somehow at the beginning of my japa, I was just praying really hard. I said, Shumati Radharani, if I've offended any devotee at all, please let that be forgiven so I can chant nicely. So I had to leave the temple early that day. I had an appointment. And I stopped by the kitchen, and I said to the cook, can I get a plate of prasadam now? I have to leave early. And she said, Ermila, the whole time I was cooking, I kept thinking, I have to tell Ermila something. I have to tell Ermila something, but I'm afraid to tell you. And I said, no, no, it's all right. Whatever you want to tell me. She said, are you sure? She said, well, you know my friend so-and-so. Oh, yes. You know how you haven't seen her much in the last year at the temple. That, that's a fact. She said, you know why? I said, no. She said, you offended her one year ago so badly that she hasn't wanted to come to the temple. Oh, what did I do? She said, I don't know. You better call her and ask her. I said, oh, thank you so much. She said, you're not angry? I said, no, I was praying like that this morning. So I was really happy that Radharani answered my prayer. And, you know, I went home. And I had an appointment, I didn't have much time. So I called this lady and I said, you know, your friend in the kitchen told me that a year ago I offended you so that you haven't wanted to come to the temple. But I don't know what I did. Can you tell me what I did? So I've been what they call a doula. I help out when women have babies. I've, I've helped deliver about 50 babies. And there was a case where a woman was going to have a baby and this other person wanted to come to the birth. But the person who wanted to come to the birth, how do I put this... She was a very heavy person. 
not physically, she was skinny, but personality very heavy, very intense person. And in a birth, you want everything kind of like, soft and slow and calm. And I thought, there's no way this woman is going to be like that. So I had gone to the mother, and I said, I don't think you should have this friend of yours at the birth. So the person who I was calling was the person I said shouldn't be there. <laughs> you following this? And she said to me, she said, you remember when you told the mother I shouldn't be on the birth? I said, oh yeah, I remember that. And you know what she said next. Why did you make a decision about my life without consulting with me? And I was there on the phone and I went, oh my God. <laughs> that was the next day. I prayed that the night before. And it was the next day that Krishna said, you do that. And I have found this again and again and again and again. That when people offend me, many times now I don't even have to ask. Krishna just shows me. And you say, Krishna, what's my lesson? This is the fourth thing here. What's my lesson? And you can ask, if I do something like this to somebody else, would you please show me? I hadn't seen that at all. Why hadn't I seen it? I was thinking about the mother. You understand? I was just thinking my services to the mother. I wasn't even aware of the feelings of this other woman. It wasn't even in my radar. You understand? You understand? I wasn't intentionally trying to hurt her, but I didn't make a plan not to hurt her. And the same people, the same with the people at the board meeting. They went sitting there thinking, we're going to make a decision about the Gurkha without telling Ermila. They don't think about that. They're just doing their business and then they realize, oh, this affects the Gurkha. <laughs> so I would really suggest that. I, I found this to be another one of those wow things in life. Just an absolute wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> and it becomes such a happy thing when you find that you can make changes in your life that affect how other people treat you. Amazing. You don't just have to be a victim. Now sometimes that's not the lesson. I found the majority of the time when someone hurts us, it's because we're hurting somebody. But other times it's another lesson. Sometimes it's a lesson in compassion, in humility. Sometimes it's a lesson to get up and move, to quit a service, to move to a different location, to change our ashram. Sometimes it can be that kind of a lesson. Sometimes it can be a lesson to read Prabhupada's books. Well, I don't know. But there's always something that Krishna is doing for us in that situation. Okay. What do we gain from doing all of this? Well, we gain peace. We cut the chain of retribution the karmic retribution chain with that person, my dear friends, we can end up with people, life after life, that we have as enemies. Please, let's not do that. And you know, you can do things like marry your enemy from another life. <laughs> Get them as your child. Chitra Ketu talked about this problem. As your boss, as your employee, as your neighbor doesn't sound like fun, does it? If one has peace, one has joy, one has freedom, and that's what we really want. Due process, connect with Krishna, may you learn through joy what is my lesson.
All right, we are now at 10.45. There are questions, comments? Yes. Why don't you just forget the mic unless they fix it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, the example that you gave that for two months you know, suffered. You suffered because you couldn't resolve the issue. Yes. And you could identify uh, what went wrong and uh, you say the root problem is. And then you had to approach the Yes. I can hear you and I can repeat it if you want. Uh, this example is very, uh, gives a lot of insight because we all suffer. Because we do not, uh, in a dental situation uh, where we have. No, no, it's better without the mic. When we have this personality, Uh, 
hoping that this uh, uh, arrangement will be made by which you can uh, uh, regain the relationship which you want to nurture. But uh, the senior devotees have a role to play. In my particular case, the senior devotees, knowing fully well, did not take voluntary efforts to resolve this. And uh, the parties concerned were not, uh, like when the Gurukul is run and they uh, interfere or they make attention, there are two things, of course. As for your experience, you felt they were interfering, which uh, were disturbing to you. Uh, because you need attention of interference. And then, so in my life, uh, I have not been able to resolve many relationships because uh, I think the, I, I'm not blaming, but I think an external legend is required, as you said. The deities in your case, uh, some devotees, the kitchen lady helped you a lot. Uh, but if such a thing doesn't happen and you keep suffering in your life, uh, how do you mitigate this issue? That's my question. Thank you so much. I'm so glad you asked this question and I'm thinking I've, I've taught this seminar dozens of times and nobody's ever asked my question. Um, and it's interesting what you said about the deities. It was, it was so wonderful because it's funny. I've told that story many times. And I never really gave all the credit to Radha Kundalini. And, and I really want to appreciate how you saw that in my own story that I didn't see myself. Oh, it's really nice. Thank you. Um, I use my own stories because I'd rather make a fool of myself than anybody else. It's a little safer. Um, I, I think your point about the deities is really important. I'll tell you just another, another story where uh, in Vrindavan I was very upset about something that was going on and I tried to fix it for years without success. And one time when I was in Vrindavan, Burjan Prabhu was there and I went to him and I said, Prabhu, there's this problem. And he looked at me and said, are you sure this is your service to fix it? And I said, well, I don't know, but I, I really care. And he said, but you've already tried everything, so maybe just let it go. I said, I just can't, it's bothering me too much. He said, then go talk to Balaram. I said, why Balaram? He said, well, everyone thinks it's Radhasham's temple, but it's not, it's Krishna Balaram's. I said, okay, but why Balaram? He said, well, he's the older brother. <laughs> so I went up to Balaram and I told him the problem, and I said, Yada, Yada, Yadam, And then I left it, and I just dropped it completely. And a year later, it was fixed without any interference on my part. So, if, if there's something that we cannot fix, if there's, if there's, if we make an attempt for due process, if we make a fair attempt for due process, and the person will not talk to us directly, they will not mediate, the higher authorities will not get involved, you can always go to God. And He will sort it out. He may not sort it out immediately. The demigods went to Lord Vishnu and they said, we have a problem with Kausa. And the Lord said, fine, you go take birth first. So, okay, Vasudev. When Vasudev married Devaki, how old must he have been? Must at least 20, right? At least. Okay, so that's time in the womb also, 21 years, let's say. And then Krishna was the eighth child. So then Vasudev must have been at least 
28. Then Krishna stayed in Vrindavan at least 11 years. So then you have 37. 38, 39. 39 years. 39 years between the time the demigods prayed and the time Krishna killed Kamsa. You think Krishna appears from Vasudeva Devaki, and you think Vasudeva Devaki would say, Great! You have finally come! Get him! But they don't. They, they say, We're worried about you. Vatsalya brothers are interesting. They say, We're worried about you. We want to hide you from Kamsa. I mean, I would say that. If, if, if Kamsa was bothering me and put me in jail and killed all my babies, and then Krishna came, I'd say, thank you for coming, would you kill this guy? That's not what they said. So they take time. When you go to Krishna for justice, it may take time. You have to leave it in his step. Another thing I'd like to share with you, um, and I, I hinted at this several times during this class, a big reason we take birth again and again and again is to try to put things in balance. If someone has harmed me, or, 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 or I have harmed somebody else, I want it balanced. Just like if somebody owes you money, you, you remember it, right? And when you see them, you think about it. You want them to pay. And when you owe someone money, you also, if you're a good person, you also remember it, correct? But we're like that with our karma. But this is what makes us take birth again and again and again and again and again and again and again. Because the problem is, when I get it in balance now with you, then I get it off balance with you. You understand? I never get it fully balanced with everyone. And I concluded it's like a monopoly game. Do you know what monopoly is? Or do only Americans want monopoly? Do you know what monopoly is? It's this board game with play money. And you're buying and selling properties. It tends to be a very emotional game. People really get into arguments about the kings. But it's all play money. So you're saying we have to have good relationships. But I will tell you very frankly, we are not going to be able to have closure and good relationships with every jiva. That will not happen externally. We can have perfect relationships with every jiva in terms of our own feelings about them. We can have zero enmity and full love and compassion for every jiva, even the mosquitoes that bite us and the dogs that bark at us. Right? I'm sure some of you read the journey home about how Radhanaswami wanted to stay in Vrindavan and he got bitten by a dog and had to stay to get rabies shots, and then he stayed because he got typhoid. So we can have love even for the dogs that bite us and the mosquitoes that bite us, but they're not going to love us. Believe me, that mosquito that's bite you, it's not going to love you. Not in that mosquito body. And some of the devotees you interact with, you may say, well, they're devotees, they're supposed to love me. Good luck. I wish you well. Some of the devotees ain't going to love you in this life. It's just what it is. And if we desperately feel we need that in order to advance or to have closure, then we may work on that with them life after life. This desire for closure and balance is one of the prime reasons why we take birth again and again and again. So it's true that if I have envy or enmity towards people, 
my spiritual life gets all clogged up, like a clogged up drain with, with gunk in it. But as long as I don't have envy, as long as I don't have enmity, as long as I wish everybody well, then it's all, it's beautiful. And if someone else doesn't wish me well, you know, Prahlad had a problem with his own father. Baba had a problem with some of his godbrothers. Baba said, for my godbrothers, what did he say? I got only compression, repression, and depression. (laughs) He said, but I was not a man to be discouraged. So, please, please, I'm, I'm begging everyone, don't put a lot of energy into trying to fix all your relationships with everyone. Try to do it. You should try to fix it. You should make an effort. Not that you shouldn't make an effort, but not to fix the relationship. You should make an effort to fix the relationship to please Krishna. Not because you want the closure of a fixed relationship. If you're trying to fix a relationship because you think, I need this relationship to be fixed in order to advance, and I need this relationship to be fixed in order to have peace in my heart, you're you're really going to suffer. Really, 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 really going to suffer. And I have to counsel hundreds of people every year who are suffering from this sort of thing. We make an effort to fix our relationship with devotees so Krishna will be pleased. And if we can't, we can't. But we make the best effort that we can. And if I'm right with Krishna, then I will be right with everybody in terms of my heart. Is that okay? Sorry, it was a little heavy. You'll probably not invite me back to Oman for at least another 12 years. Anybody else? Yes, please. And then this will have to be the last one, then we have to end. And just wanted to know from you, from your personal experience, as you shared that uh, whole one year, uh, the case where you were not knowing that by knowing unknowingly you have offended somebody and you have come to know that and you try to resolve it. So in between that period, as it is said in the scripture that if you offend any Vaishnava or a devotee, and you also rightly mentioned about your spiritual progress will be, you know, it will come down. So, did you experience the same thing in your life within one year? Or you were affected in your uh, changing process or anywhere? I, have, I don't remember. I know after re- I resolved it, it was very nice. I don't remember. Sorry. But I, I know I know it was a it was a big help after it was resolved. I'm sure in general I'm committing offenses all over the place, which is why I haven't achieved Krishna Prema. That's another That's another thing. So I hope you all found this helpful. Yes. Yes. Yes.